Welcome to the Respectful Divorce Podcast. If you're considering a divorce, it's important to know that you have options for how you divorce. On the Respectful Divorce Podcast, we'll explore those options and provide advice from divorce professionals. We also talk with divorce clients about what went right and what went wrong in their divorce. On today's edition of the Respectful Divorce Podcast, we're talking with Peter Bort, an attorney serving Montgomery, Delaware, and Chester counties in Pennsylvania. Well, thanks for joining us this afternoon, Peter, and taking some of your afternoon to share some of your experiences and insight with our listeners. Well, I'm so delighted that you asked me, and I can tell you that um, I'm really thrilled to talk about a topic that has been feeding my heart and soul for quite a few years now. Well, I think we may be kindred spirits in that, and so I'm anxious to hear your thoughts about what we, our work that we do in the collaborative and and peacemaking areas. But to begin, let me get you to tell me just a little bit about where you grew up and how you got to where you are now. Right. So um, I grew up uh, about an hour and a half north of New York City, a beautiful area called the Mid-Hudson Valley, like Henry Hudson, the Explorer, and um, went to uh, college in New York State called SUNY Binghamton. It's now called Binghamton University. And uh, Georgetown Law School got me after that. And uh, then I landed in Pennsylvania after a, a circuitous path from there. Well, we were just talking and I was talking about how you look much younger than I am, but I thought you may not be a lot younger because we graduated from law school very close in time. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I'm an 84 grad. I've been practicing law 37 years. Well, you look like a very young man to me. And what do you think the secret is to looking that young? You're right. So it's really about um, career choice and having chosen to do uh, collaborative law and mediation as very solutions-based approaches uh, to solving families' problems as opposed to litigating um, and and making war through letters back and forth to other attorneys. Uh, I, I would attribute, uh, you know, youthfulness to that. Well, if you would, let us know how your journey went from graduating from Georgetown Law School and going to Pennsylvania into the world of peacemaking and collaborative law and mediation. You know, I first heard about mediation in 1994, and I immediately said, that's for me. Uh, it just, I, I intuitively got that it was a really great method for helping people with competing interests to communicate better. And so I took my first mediation training in 94, and it was offered by people from Maryland. Maryland court adopted mediation very early on. And so they had a lot of experience, it was great training. I did a lot of community volunteer mediation work, and I've I when I last counted, I'm over two thousand um, mediation cases. Wow! Uh, so it's it's a it's a big knowledge and experience base, as you can probably relate to. We just get better and better because um, we're not trying to you know run the four forty faster. We're we're more you know doing the razzle dazzle with people. Uh, so yes, uh, mediation. And then when I 
I had never heard of collaborative uh, law. And as soon as I heard about it in 2010, I said, that's for me. And uh, immediately took the trainings and have done a number of those cases belong to a wonderful um, group of professionals who uh, work together, um, not as a business entity, but as a loose uh, association of professionals, each who have their own uh, practice or business. And so it's interdisciplinary, as I'm sure uh, you have, uh, which is you've got lawyers, you've got therapists who act as coaches, you've got financial neutrals, you've got um, child specialists, you've got as ancillary members, we have uh, mortgage brokers, realtors, uh, clutter reducers, you know, all the, all the people that need to be in support of a family in transition. And it works remarkably well. So I'm going to look back on a couple of things. Where are the people from your practice group located and in, in what counties oh, in Pennsylvania? Yes. So we are in uh, Chester, Montgomery, Bucks. Uh, we have, we've got somebody right on the threshold into Berks County. Uh, and um, so it gives us a really nice mix of folks in southeastern Pennsylvania. Well, our jurisdiction here in North Texas is a little bit like that. My county, which is Denton, is just north of Dallas and Fort Worth or Dallas and Tarrant County. And we have another county just east of us, which gives us a real blend of almost a marbleization of rural and metropolitan populations, which is an interesting mix to, to work with. Yeah, it's great to have, um, you know, diversity of all kinds with, with these groups. So if you could explain to our listeners what, in your opinion, a divorce that's a respectful divorce looks like. Yeah, so first of all, um, not it's not for everybody, okay? So we do do some level of assessment and also we invite them to self-assess. And there are some very good tools for assessing whether uh, a couple is going to be um, well-served by uh, this process we call collaborative or respectful divorce. And what you'll typically find me saying I don't want to be involved with is a situation where um, there has been such a, a tragic um, breach of trust that uh, it's, it's really beyond repair in a way, or where there is, you know, kind of raging mental illness on, on the part of one of the parties. So I, I, I select myself away from really difficult cases, honestly. Uh, and um, so the, the well-suited to the respectful divorce are people who want a new way to relate with one another. But um, if, if they're going forward as parents, they want a place to co-parent better. And they want to preserve the aspect of their relationship as it relates to being co-parents and, and enhance it, improve it. Uh, so there's that. Um, there's also the um, level of being able to see that the other person needs to have a future too. It's not just all about me on the other side of the divorce. I want, 
I want the my spouse to land, my ex-spouse to land as well as possible. And part of that is when we do a collaborative case, we can operate a little bit outside the boundaries of what a court would permit as a settlement. We can be more creative. We can have more win-win opportunities come out of the collaborative process. Um, as you know, we know, uh, those who get involved and commit to be in a collaborative case, the professionals and the parties, they sign a binding contract. And that contract says, if you should choose one or both of you as parties to go on and seek um, a result from a litigation tribunal, in other words, leave the collaborative team to get resolution, those two, those parties have to start over with brand new counsel and uh, experts. So it really puts skin in the game, so to speak. People have skin in the game to make the process work because it's quite burdensome to start over. And I'm happy to say I've only had that happen once in all of my cases. And again, I think that is partly attributed to, to the, good, the good assessment of what's, what's going to be the right family for this model. And what do you think the after divorce looks like that is different in a collaborative divorce or a mediation from a case that has been litigated in court? I think often um, the, the, the result of litigation is you have two very unhappy people and they're trying to point the finger at somebody, their lawyer, the other lawyer, the, the judge or master, just they're, they're just unhappy. And when I look at what comes out of mediation, what comes out of uh, collaborative divorce are people who have more of an empowerment. So rather than feeling like the victim, they feel like the victor. You know, we, we got through a difficult transition. We did it respectfully. We did it gracefully. You know, we put our kids first and um, look what we have to show for it. So I, I think that the, the litigated cases have less of that. If we could just for a minute, uh, just so that, that the listeners can have an understanding of the differences, would you compare what a litigated case handled in court and a mediation and a collaborative case, how those in the trenches process-wise look different from each other? Yes. So um, let's start with the one that has the most um, the most conflict and cost and superstructure, which is the litigated case. And so with the litigated case, there are a lot of formalities required by the court to be followed. There can be a lot of duplication of efforts. So um, I'm going to talk in a minute about the process for managing the financial uh, aspect of the documentation in a collaborative or mediation case versus litigation. But suffice it to say, that process is much more laborious in a litigated case. And there can be a lot of people going down rabbit holes of unnecessary pleadings, unnecessary hearings. So just imagine if, if you have a family where one or both people are very, you know, already very busy people, whether it's professionally or with kids, and all of a sudden they have to start taking these big chunks out of their schedule for court appearances, 
or cancel at the last minute court appearances or um, and, and for dates they have no control over. Right. They, they don't schedule their dates. The court schedules their dates. So it's a process that is um, stilted. Um, uh, I'd say Byzantine is, is an appropriate word and um, extremely costly and, and probably unnecessarily so. And what I find, I don't know how it is in your jurisdiction, but people always think they'll get retribution in the form of attorney's fees. But what we find here is that it doesn't happen very often. And when it does, it's all out of the same pot. So the net left for the family, i.e. the children, often ends up being substantially less. In other words, you don't get a lot of return on your financial investment. And I would change nothing about what you just said as to how we have that experience in our part of the world. It's it's the same thing. Now, uh, so that's the litigated uh, piece. Um, the next um, uh, less complex process would be collaborative uh, divorce with that contract we talked about, uh, assemble a team, now, the team could be as few as two lawyers, two clients. However, we really prefer what we call an interdisciplinary or full team, which would include uh, the mental health professional we call our coach. Sometimes they're called facilitators in other parts of the, the country and uh, a financial neutral, someone that can. And this is where the financial paper uh, piece comes in. So just imagine you've got in the litigated case, all of the financial information comes in and it has to be processed through two attorney professionals to, to the jot and tittle, everything through And lawyers. you're saying to the number two, not just to the lawyers. Yeah, there, there's a count of two. Yes. Mm -hmm. So so it's it's double the efforts that, that need to be uh, placed on this information. And it's people that don't necessarily have a financial um, background. They, they don't necessarily have MBAs uh, or CPAs. Um, you know, they have, they have some street knowledge of, of those things, but they're not experts. And, they, uh, so, so, and their, their rates are usually higher than the financial uh, experts that we use. So here you go, duplication of efforts, higher rates, and when we do the collaborative, we've got one person, the financial neutral, doing all that work. And then the attorneys, as advocates for their clients in the collaborative process, sure, they're going to have a look at the, you know, what the summary is that the financial neutral has put together, if necessary, the, um, the more detailed piece on something. But it's going to save the parties a lot of money, and it does. So... Uh, so that's one thing. And then in a collaborative process, you know, it's not a relaxing thing for most people to go into a courthouse. And it's certainly not relaxing for them to take a witness stand. Uh, and so that doesn't happen in collaborative. In, in collaborative, it's all happening in nice conference rooms or maybe over a Zoom, uh, depending on how people want to do it. And it's on their schedule. There, there's not going to be a meeting unless the time works for them. So it's, and in collaborative, we, we prepare an agenda. 
We have a note taker who produces notes or minutes of the meeting. So you're not surprised. You know what you know what's going to be talked about going in. You have um, the mental health professional with their wisdom about managing the emotional aspect of communication. You have them involved. And so it's a very sleek, beautiful process. Now, less involved than collaborative is mediation. Mediation is the two parties and uh, a professional who serves as a neutral. Uh, you could call them Switzerland. So the, the, <laughs> the, uh, in mediation, you've got two parties in Switzerland. Uh, and usually they have um, a legal background um, and you know, a, a street level working knowledge of, of finances and things of that nature. Um, when I serve as mediator, I will often invite the parties to hire a financial neutral because, again, their rate is lower and they're better at managing the financial piece than, than I am as a lawyer. So uh, that's, again, there's no court appearances. It's only according to the party schedules. Now, why? would parties choose collaborative over mediation? And one reason would be, let's say we have uh, one person in the marriage has been thinking about getting divorced for quite a while. And so they're kind of, they're at the front of the train. And then you've got the other party who's just now realizing, oh, we're getting divorced. So we call them, you know, kind of more the the back of the train. They're not as, as up to speed with the whole, um, being ready for this is the other one. And so it's natural, it's human nature that the one who's at the back of the train might be resisting having meetings with the mediator, might be resisting coming up with the financial information. And as a mediator, I don't have much of a stick to make them hold to the process. When I'm in the collaborative, there are, I've got my lawyer, I've got the um, coach who knows how to process, help me process the emotional aspect of this. And so there's a much greater likelihood that the party who starts out at the back of the train can be moved up toward the front of the train as far as uh, keeping the process moving forward when we choose the collaborative. So it's a little I bit- I agree with you. It seems yeah. that-, that um, the, the magic or the secret sauce in this is information. All of our clients seem to be able, once they get the same information and they have someone like a financial professional to, quote unquote, translate it for them into understandable every person talk, that they can get up to speed. And then they feel empowered, or at least that's my experience, to make decisions that are informed and they don't feel insecure about them, even if they have been the lesser financially astute or involved party up to that point. I totally agree. And I couldn't say it better. Uh, it, the information is so important. And especially if people perceive it as, as being without an agenda, a, a neutral body of information that they can trust. And when you talk about the, the mental health professional, if you would just address what their role is, because when when people that are not involved in the, the business that we're in here, mental health professional, they think they're coming in to do therapy 
And of course, it's very different than that. So if you could explain what that looks like. They have a short-term job to manage in a healthy way for this family, the exchange of information, the communication, the meetings process. Uh, So let's just give an example. The team is meeting in a conference room and this person, the coach, has already met separately with both of the parties and really knows kind of who's coming through that door emotionally and um, and cerebrally. And, and they know that one of the parties just shuts down like a turtle when they have lost their center and their ability to process information. So, And by the way, if I can just throw yes. this wrench into it, a court does not have that luxury. Correct. Correct. And in fact, would probably punish the turtle. So, Mm. uh, but in, in my, my example, um, so then the coach calls, calls a break and then meets separately with each party, gets the turtle to stick their head back out of the shell and boom, we're back in a productive meeting space. Uh, Also, they are kind of the conductor of the meeting. Again, it's a neutral who's conducting the meeting, which if, you know, if, if one side sees the other uh, side's lawyer kind of running the show, then they could feel less empowered. But now we've got a neutral person running the meeting, a neutral person setting the agenda, and often the neutral person um, being the minute taker or the note taker. So it's, uh, it's really an amazingly uh, well-designed process, and it's not about therapy. It's, it's just about a short-term job to manage this chunk of communication in a family. I remember when we had our very first neutral mental health professional coming to our area. Um, one of the lawyers that that brought her here said, it's like pixie dust. When they're in the room, everything just works out better because the parties feel more comfortable and they don't feel like it's their lawyer against the other lawyer that there's somebody to manage the meeting and it's not a wrestling match. And I thought that was pretty powerful. So to that, just to go a step further, how about what client's response is or concern about they don't have an advocate in the room because of all these neutrals? Well, I would tell you, as it relates to uh, collaborative divorce, they have an advocate in the room because they're sitting next to their lawyer, their lawyer is their advocate. And the good thing about their advocate and the other advocate is they have learned how to play nicely in the sandbox. So they have all this training with the collaborative divorce process and they are um, in, a, in an, a space where they can rise above kind of the petty, um, you know, uh, the petty communications. That, that can happen. Uh, and we see so much in our litigated cases and they can move to what's essential, you know, and I'll find myself as my client's advocate ultimately, but sometimes I'm talking to the other party's needs because I know it serves my client to, and they've, and my clients already shared with me, I want this to be a good outcome for everybody. And so I'm, I'm often, bringing up things that are really in support of the other person who's not my, who's not my uh, uh, assigned um, 
client. So, uh, and so to to expand on that, if you would just a little bit, you I think are describing the difference between interest based, where it's not a zero sum game where somebody wins and somebody loses, versus position based. Could you explain that role, the role of, yes. of those two types of position versus interest based negotiation? I sure would. And and one of the great things about the collaborative process is to um, start off um, my interaction with my client. We focus on what are their goals and interests, and we really develop what it is, you know, where they want to be five years from now, how they want things to be for their kids, um, you know, how they'd like to be financially. And we develop goals and interests. Um you know, each attorney with their own client. Now, the cool thing is we then compare notes. And if this case was assessed properly for collaborative, there's going to be quite a bit of overlapping goals and interests that they share. And so when we reach um, a point in the mediation, in the uh, meeting where we feel kind of stuck, we, we usually will reflect back what are what are the common goals and interests. And let's see where one of those we can just kind of pull out right now and say, well, you, you both agree, you know, that when the kids are with the other parent, the, you know, the pet should come with, right? So do we really need to get stuck over this aspect? You know, because you already, you already said you both want that. Uh, as an example. So that's in terms of interest-based. Uh, we're always looking at what are the interests of the party parties and a position-based is, um, it's a great way to kind of hammer, hammer things out that need to be hammered. So, you know, if you've got a murder trial and, and, you know, the prosecution has done some things they shouldn't have done and, and, and breached some barriers they shouldn't have breached, you need to just blast your guns and you need to you need to be like one of those talking heads on one of the news shows and you need you just need to state a position really well and 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 uh and convincingly so it's it's one position against another it's not a terrible way to get to the truth but it does tend to chew people up and to get to a transition family that goes from being married to uh, not married anymore, you don't need that crucible. In other words, that's that's like sending the family to a boxing match when what they need is more of a, a coffee chat by, our, by the fire. You I know? love that. And one of the things you have on your website is the mindful divorce and the non-court lawyer. Um, I think that's what you're describing and you've described it just beautifully. Is there anything that I'm leaving out when I reference those terms back to what you have been discussing. I, I think we really, we really have it. And the, the mindfulness, um, you can think of it as an approach to living a life that is willing to kind of sit with some pain rather than try to numb it. Okay. So to, if I'm trying to avoid or numb the pain of my divorce, I'm just going to say, you just talk to my lawyer, you know, and I don't want to think about it till the next court hearing, you know, and that kind of thing. That's, that's not being in the moment. That's not being mindful. And, and the mindful person will say, okay, 
you know what? I really am getting divorced. I really do need to talk to people about, you know, what's important to me. I really do need to listen to what's important to my soon to be ex. It's painful, but I, I'm, I'm willing, I'll do it. And the other part of being mindful is realizing that I'm not the Lone Ranger and that there's support for me. There are people that have great training and knowledge and wisdom and experience to go through this with me. And if I'm just willing to be a little bit resourceful and allow myself to be supported a little bit. Um, and so that's why a lot of times, you know, the, the do-it-yourself type, you know, they're, they're great at fixing things around the house and getting all the things done in their yard and they don't need a financial advisor and, you know, they're going to do their will over the internet, you know, instead of having a lawyer drafted to do it yourself, do it yourself. Divorces can work. I'm not going to, you know, say that they can't. Sometimes it's really a train wreck. And sometimes we come in as, you know, when I used to litigate and we come in and we're trying to salvage what started out, you know, pretty interest-based and pretty okay. And then there were no professionals involved and the, the do-it-yourself turned into an absolute nightmare for everybody. Sometimes I think about it as, and I know kids, this is different, but adults, when they have a bad tooth, they could pull their own tooth, but should they? Because <laughs> of what could go wrong. Yeah. And, and it's just common for things to go wrong when you are in a process that is something that you're not trained to be a part of, except as a client, not as a the professional part of it. Yes. I am fascinated by your practice, Peter. Our practices are somewhat similar and you have such a passion for this. And I so appreciate that. Could you so that we can um, I wish that we could talk for hours about this, because I know our listeners would appreciate and and get wisdom from everything that you could say over a much longer period of time than we have. But but what would you say happy clients or satisfied clients look like to you when you have done a case in one of these other processes? In in uh, the respectful divorce. Yes. Yeah. So usually what it looks like is these are people who are able to go to their kids' um, important functions, you know, their bar mitzvah, their wedding, um, engagement party. These are people who have worked through a difficult time in their life, but they've been willing to do what's necessary to get to um, realize that there's still a lot of caring. There's still a lot of good. There's a reason why we got married in the first place and to preserve the good. So they're on the other side of this life, life event, and they preserved what's good about why they came to, together originally. And, um, and who and, would you say are the beneficiaries of that? Well, it's certainly their kids. <laughs> certainly and it wouldn't be kids. just their kids, but maybe their grandchildren, too, and extended family. Absolutely. I mean, I, I believe that a, a really rotten divorce could could have effects carrying through generations. And yes. there's probably historical examples of it. I think that's right. Thank you so much for sharing part of your day with me and with all our listeners. 
it has been such a valuable time and I appreciate all that you do in the collaborative movement in your mediation and other peacemaking work. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Well, it's really been my pleasure. And I think you hold a, a beautiful forum here and um, are doing a great job to get the message out to um, a deserving public, a public that really deserves a better way, a, a more respectful way to divorce. That's beautifully said. Thank you so much, Peter. And I look forward to future conversations with you. Indeed. Same here. Tune in next time for another edition of the Respectful Divorce Podcast. And remember that collaborative divorce is a better way to untie the knot.